And thank you for Eric for that uh, leading us in that uh, quite nostalgic song. I don't know how many others besides me it was nostalgic for. Stick your hand up if you knew it from your young days. There we go, a fair few there. Excellent. I'm glad that was the case because that meant it didn't fall flat on its face. But there we go. Right, we're going to turn now to Luke chapter 19 and read the authentic story of Zacchaeus. Jesus went on into Jericho and was passing through. There was a chief tax collector there named Zacchaeus, who was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was a little man and couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. And so he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus, who was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Hurry down, Zacchaeus, because I must stay in your house today. And Zacchaeus hurried down and welcomed him with great joy. And all the people who saw it started grumbling. Don't they always? And the man has gone as a guest to the home of a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Listen, sir, I will give half of my belongings to the poor. And I, and if I have cheated anyone, I will pay them back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Salvation has come to this house today, for this man also is a descendant of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, a few verses from the book of James in chapter 5. And now, you rich people, Listen to me. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted away and your clothes have been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver are covered with rust. And this rust will be a witness against you. And will eat up your flesh like fire. You have piled up riches in these last days. You have not paid any wages to those who work in your fields. Listen to their complaints. The cries of those who gather in your crops have reached the ears of God the Lord Almighty. And your life here on earth has been made full of luxury and pleasure. You have made yourselves fat for the day of slaughter. 
you have condemned and murdered innocent people and they do not resist you. The story of Zacchaeus probably owes its popularity more to the song that we sung and which has been sung over the years in many a Sunday school class. More so than it does to anything else. The song was popular when I was a child. And I probably learned the story from the song rather than from the biblical text. In fact, I can still recall my surprise when I discovered that the story was, in fact, in the Bible. The origins of the song are lost in the mists of time. Most of the musical scores are simply ascribed as anon or traditional. And that fact opens up the possibility that it may have come from the days of the medieval mystery plays, when so much of the Bible was taught by picture, story and music to a broadly illiterate society. There are several versions of the song uh, with word changes suggesting regional variations around the UK and elsewhere. Although the only name connected with the song is the name of Elsie Leslie. She was the first ever American child actress who made her debut in 1884 at the age of three. She became famous in the American music hall scene, although she retired from acting in 1911 at the early age of 30. Although she lived in New York until her death at the age of 85 in 1966. It's unclear whether she performed the song or merely held a copyright on it. But her name does appear on some of the musical manuscripts. Right, here we get into the proper story now. The name of Zacchaeus perhaps surprisingly, means innocent. And it's a hybrid name. The Zach part comes from the Hebrew name Isaac. But the ending is Greek. And this suggests that Zacchaeus was a Hellenistic, that is to say, a Greek-speaking Jew. And because of this, he may have had problems being accepted by the Jewish hierarchy and as a result became a tax collector. Now, a tax collector in modern society is a quite respectable occupation. My sister was a tax collector with the Inland Revenue Department for a number of years. Although she did receive some mockery and her job title was repeatedly bracketed together with the word sinners. 
usually by Christians. However, there was little or no similarity between the job that my sister used to do and that of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus's job was what the Romans called the publicani. It's confusingly translated in the King James Bible as publican. And most other translations use the phrase tax collector. Although it literally means state representative. There is no connection between the publicani and pubs, inns or taverns except as places where they would drink the Roman plonk and pick up a prostitute. The Romans would auction out the right to collect the taxes in a particular locality to the highest bidder. The publicani then would bid for the right to collect the taxes in that district and the winner would have to pay the auction price to the Romans and then had to claim that money back as a tax from the people of his region by fair means or by foul. He would have to hope that he could recoup the auction value that he had paid with enough extra to cover his own living expenses. Needless to say, the lack of accountability and the power of the Roman state that he was entitled to call upon and charge for opened him up to a lot of temptation. The enforcement charge was added to the bill as a further commission, a bit like a modern bailiff. The Romans simply turned a blind eye to this enhancement to their tax system. The publicani were able to build up a considerable fortune at the cost of the hatred of their customers. They hated them because they were generally sure that they were cheating them, as well as aiding the Roman state. And they were therefore seen as collaborators. This unpopularity was then made worse by the fact that their lives were under almost continuous threat from the people at large. And they would undoubtedly have had to pay substantial sums for their own protection. Some early sources suggest that Zacchaeus had possibly been a disciple of John the Baptist. And that he was among those who had changed their allegiance to Jesus when John had been imprisoned and then executed. And he appears to have been one of those who later became discouraged and left Jesus when his claims became too demanding and the flack got too great. He presumably returned to tax collecting a lucrative form of employment for a man who was frequently ostracised 
by the local society for his dubious heritage. He was clearly dissatisfied with this lifestyle, as he had already devoted some considerable time and energy to following the teachings of both John the Baptist and Jesus in his earlier years. And as he had already been among the disciples in the past, Jesus and Zacchaeus weren't actually strangers. And this does perhaps explain why Jesus appears rather presumptive in inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. After all, this wasn't normal etiquette in first century Palestine any more than it is in Britain today. Now, Zacchaeus was nicknamed Matthias by the disciples. And many scholars believe that it was under that name that Zacchaeus was elected to replace Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve disciples, as recorded in Acts chapter 1. We do know that Zacchaeus later became the first bishop of Caesarea in Samaria, the Roman administrative centre for Judea on the Mediterranean coast. However, as there are no less than five different accounts of his death in the writings of the early church, the only thing that we can say with any certainty is he died. If you visit Jericho today as a tourist, you will undoubtedly be taken to a particularly old and gnarled sycamore tree which stands at the side of the road near to the centre of Jericho. It's an African sycamore tree, known as the sycamore fig tree, which is a quite distinct species from the European sycamore that we are more familiar with. This tree is unlikely to be the original, as you may also be taken, to an Orthodox monastery, also in Jericho, where you can see a tree trunk kept behind a pane of glass. This too is described as Zacchaeus's tree. Whether or not either of these trees was actually climbed by Zacchaeus is impossible for us to know. After the Romans had become the masters in Palestine, Jericho and much of the Jordan Valley was given to Egypt's Queen Cleopatra. Do you remember her? By the Roman general Mark Antony as a love gift during their famous love affair. Hey, our darling, I'm giving you a river. <laughs> yeah. Cleopatra, in due course, rented out the Hasmonean Palace in Jericho for an extortionate rent to Herod, the son of Antipater. He later became the notorious King Herod the Great. But at this point, he was merely the governor of Galilee. 
In 30 BC, Queen Cleopatra famously committed suicide by encouraging a poisonous snake to bite her, although some ancient uh, sources of the time say that she was simply murdered. Herod, who had been proclaimed king of the Jews in the meantime, then grabbed the palace for himself as a winter residence. Jesus visited Jericho on his way between Jerusalem and Galilee on a couple of occasions when his route appears to have been up and down the Jordan Valley. It was a popular way of avoiding the Samaritan lands that stood between the two areas, although Jesus probably used the route because it was very well populated and rather more sheltered from the weather. Jericho was also the place where blind Bartimaeus and possibly as many as three other blind men mentioned in the various gospel accounts were healed. Now scholars don't agree about how many different individuals were involved or whether they were different accounts of the same event or not. Zacchaeus was being quite imaginative to climb a tree to see Jesus. He may have wanted to see Jesus without necessarily Jesus seeing him. He may also have been ashamed of having abandoned his former discipleship. And he would have felt vulnerable standing in a crowd as it could have contained numerous enemies, many of whom would have been taller than he. It's interesting how when we leave an organisation, especially if the leaving was done with ill will, we are often subsequently driven by a curiosity about how that organisation is getting on without us, or not. We were secretly hoping that they weren't coping at all, perhaps. Jesus had clearly outmaneuvered Zacchaeus. He spotted him up the tree. He spotted him up the tree and his audacious invitation was made. Zacchaeus hadn't expected that and maybe he thought, I haven't washed the dishes and the kitchen is a mess. The end of the story is somewhat constrained. Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus with great joy, says the text, and perhaps because he didn't expect Jesus to take him back. He was delighted to discover that Jesus was still ready to talk to him. We're not told whether his response to Jesus took place immediately or whether he was responding to their conversation in Zacchaeus' house. But I would guess it was the latter. Most testimonies, whilst very uplifting and encouraging, rarely show the whole map of our walk toward God. They only give a snapshot of our experience at a particular moment in time, and they usually feature the stories that show our success rather than our failure, because we don't like admitting to our failure. 
And as you get older, you will find that you have a rather lengthy story to tell. And the time it takes to tell that story becomes far too long to fit in a five-minute slot in a church service. And this means that we finish up with the idea that we have odd moments when God deals with us and longer moments when he doesn't. In fact, we all have an individually tailored walk with God. It's matched to our temperament, to our interests, to our character. And when others look at us, they just get a snapshot of God at work. In the same way as when you drive past roadworks, you're only seeing the workers leaning on shovels. The reality is that you often don't notice is that they are leaning on their shovels because just at that moment some mad bloke is driving past them far too fast and far too close. And it may well be you. (laughs) We Christians all have moments when we seem to be drifting away from God rather than towards him. But the reality often is that it is an illusion. Others haven't seen where we are coming from, nor indeed where we are heading. Zacchaeus had started well. He had followed John the Baptist, who was imprisoned and then murdered. Then he followed Jesus, but he became discouraged because God seemed to be asking more of him than he could possibly give. It was just more than his faith could bear. You and I would probably have written him off at that point as the drawer of the rich lifestyle that he had become used to was just too much for him to resist. But Jesus didn't give up on him. He built on his past. He took him further on. And perhaps he explained some things that Zacchaeus hadn't grasped before. The result was a transformation of his lifestyle. He began to see that the habit of using people and loving things was fundamentally wrong. He needed to learn how to use his things to love people, especially those that he had cheated and caused suffering and hardship to. Okay. The little book of James. It's a puzzle. The name of James could refer to any of several different people. It could have been James, the son of Zebedee of Galilee, sometimes known as James the Great. Or it could have been the disciple, James the son of Alphaeus, sometimes known as James the Less. Or it could have been James, the brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
for many years. And the letter was probably written in Jerusalem in any case. It's odd. In the sense that it begins and ends just like a letter. But its internal shape is more like that of a sermon. And this has led some scholars to speculate that it was written, the written notes that were taken in the sermon of James, but then written down in the form of a letter for circulation around the wider Christian community. If it was a sermon by James, the son of Zebedee, it may have been preached very soon before his martyrdom, as he was the first of the apostles to be martyred. And this took place in 44 AD. Perhaps then the writer suddenly found himself in possession of a transcript of one of the last sermons that James ever preached. That would be a rather a good reason to circulate the manuscript and, for that matter, to have it included in our Bibles. Chapter 5 is clearly a rant against the rich and the powerful. And it reveals the unsympathetic attitude that the early church had to the rich. The rich, then as now, were commonly the exploiters of the poor. They usually kept most of the slaves. And they would argue that the economy wouldn't work without them. The same argument was still being used when William Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury were advocating the abolition of slavery in the early years of the 19th century. But in the first century, over 45% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And that is why the Romans were always very, very fearful of slave revolts. They banned slaves from wearing any distinctive clothing, which would identify them as slaves. And this was to prevent them from knowing just how many other slaves there were on the streets at any one time. The 1960 film Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas, portrays just such a revolt. The original revolt was the third of three great servile wars, as historians call them. And it occurred in 73 BC, when the Roman Empire was still a republic. There were many other minor slave revolts across the empire, and they were invariably put down without mercy, and almost always by mass crucifixion. In today's world, there has grown up in our minds an association between the rich and powerful and corruption. Recent scandals have only served to confirm this impression. The WikiLeaks scandal and the Panama Papers among others, have revealed a dark underbelly 
of corrupt activity, which has until now been kept hidden from us. What has changed then? Perhaps it's not the extent of the corruption, but rather the growing difficulty that the rich have trying to keep it all secret. It is true that some with riches have shown a commendable philanthropic side. Bill Gates, the former boss of the Microsoft empire, has become famous today for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is a trust fund set up by him and his wife, Melinda, to finance the fight against poverty and to encourage healthcare right across the world. J.K. Rowling, the writer of the popular Harry Potter books, was declared to be the 1,062nd richest person in the world in 2004. And that was at the height of the lucrative Harry Potter film franchise. However, in 2016, she was removed from the Forbes rich list because she had ceased to be a billionaire. Over the 12 years, she had given away much of her fortune to charity. And she had also set up the Volant Charitable Trust, a fund to promote poverty relief, particularly amongst women and children in Scotland. These heroes are few and far between compared with those who use their riches to aggrandise themselves and to buy political power. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. The name of Philip Green is easily associated with corruption. This is partly because there are two of them. The first is Philip Green, who, until recently, was the chief executive officer of Carillion. Carillion was declared bankrupt in January this year, leaving a number of major government projects including several new NHS hospitals, such as the one, the Royal Liverpool Hospital, which has stood idle and empty since January. It is only partly built, but there is a lurking suspicion that the company's directors have been milking the system. The other is Sir Philip Green, who has been lauded as a successful business leader just a couple of decades ago. He became the chief executive officer of Arcadia, who controlled a range of retail names from 2002. And he received his knighthood in 2006. However, many of our politicians were calling for his prosecution recently. And it was noted that in a parliamentary debate about his activities, not one of our 650 MPs could find a good word to say in his favour. This had happened because of the way he had allowed the British home stores chain 
to become denuded of resources and ultimately to go into bankruptcy. And 11,000 people lost their jobs and a further 10,000 former employees found their pensions were under threat. It was alleged that Green had withdrawn £30 million from the company as dividend, much of which was passed directly to his wife, Tina, who lived in the Principality of Monaco, the little Mediterranean coastal tax haven. And this action had saved them both the trouble of paying any tax at all to HMRC. More recently, The Business Select Committee in the House of Commons was involved in a dispute with him over a possible donation back to the BHS Pension Fund. It was suggested that HMRC should confiscate his luxury yacht. That will get him. As an additional incentive to ensure his cooperation... And the withdrawal of his knighthood was also suggested. However, it emerged last year that he agreed to donate £383 million back into the BHS Pension Fund. So, the supreme sign that God had done a work in Zacchaeus' life was the fact that he was ready to give generously to the poor and the needy and to compensate all those that he had cheated. You see, it's still true that the love of money is the root of all evil. But the love of God, as revealed on the cross, is still the only antidote.